Okay, everybody. Uh, welcome. Uh, welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, we are going to do this week on Popcorn Drink Combo, we are going to do John Carpenter's 1988 science fiction film, They Live. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. I'm not sure I live. Um, <laughs> After watching it? Yeah. It was a <laughs> this lot. was my pick. <laughs> well, I have to say it's nice to go back to... Um, non-perfect movies that we basically spend the entire half hour or 45 minutes praising right that's a fair statement and this there's stuff to praise here too but this is this is not carpenter's best and i say that as somebody who likes both carpenter and this movie it's by far and away not his best roddy piper's biceps are impressive Roddy Piper is supposed to be from Denver, but speaks with a thick Canadian accent throughout the entire film. <laughs> well, yeah, he's Canadian. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, this is, um, you know, I, I guess what I'll say before we go further is I felt like, you know, this feels like a student film compared to The Thing. And The Thing is six years before this, I think. This feels like a student film from 1952. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess in some ways he intended to do. I have to oh, give yeah. him, you know. I mean, he's definitely, I mean, it's a very small movie. It's only made for $4 million. Uh, but it felt much less sort of polished and professional compared to some of his earlier films. Like it's sort of, like I'm not, uh, I can't think off the top of my head where a director kind of went backwards like that, unless it was intentional. Well, you know, $4 million doesn't really... I mean, it has the feeling of about four thousand dollars. Uh, Wikipedia calls it three million, but other sources I saw said four million. I'm pretty sure um, he made it. He basically passed the hat around in church, and then <laughs> he made it from the like twenty-seven dollars he got. <laughs> and I think it was the um, church it was the homeless people that he showed that's right. in the movie. That was the church, so he got about fifty-seven cents. Um. So let, let's start off. Um, so uh, the movie takes place in uh, the 80s in Los Angeles. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but the credits have the same font as The Thing and other John Carpenter movies. Yes, the John Carpenter font. Carpenter wrote the music. Oh, and the, the... he certainly did. <laughs> and the screenplay is credited as Frank Armitage, but it's actually John Carpenter. Yeah. Because he felt that too many other people had input in credit, and he didn't feel like he could take full credit for the movie himself or, or perhaps full blame. <laughs> um, and this is based on uh, a short story uh, called eight o'clock in the morning by Ray Nelson, which is uh, free online. And I read uh, in preparation for the podcast, a short story is six pages long. Uh, hmm. It's very short. Um, it's actually also been made into a graphic. I guess you can't really call it a graphic novel. You can call it a comic because it's so short as well. Um, and it's just it's just a little thumbnail sketch about a guy who discovers that he's surrounded by aliens and they're being controlled by messages through television largely. Uh, that's literally the sum total of the Ray Nelson story. And right. the story's from 63. And from this, you make a movie? <clears throat> yeah. That's yeah. my grandfather would well, say. <laughs> but I guess Blade Runner's from a short story, too. So um, Novella. <laughs> so we start off literally with Roddy Piper, who is the man with no name. The character in the book is called Nada, 
George Nada and the sorry in the short story, which means nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's listed as Nada in the credit, but here he is, the man with no name. And he literally the movie literally starts off with him on the wrong side of the tracks, like he's walking across the train tracks, essentially wandering into L.A. as what they would call in 2019 a homeless person, what my mother would call a bum. Or a hobo. He's actually yeah. more of the classic hobo because there's, <laughs> there's the trains. He's got a bindle. The, yeah, and he's running around the trains. He's got like a canvas knapsack. He somehow manages to be clean shaven uh, despite being homeless. And his hair is well cut. His mullet his is mullet. in pretty good shape. He has so, he has a pretty good he has a pretty good mullet. His mullet is reminiscent, I would say, of Mel Gibson <laughs> in Lethal in the first Lethal Weapon. They have a very similar. Uh, they must have used the same hair stylist, <laughs> same mullet stylist. Um, but he's literally seen walking in. Uh, he goes to um, the job center where the overhead tells us that food stamps have been suspended because of computer problems. Just sort <laughs> of like creating this this everything's crap tone to the movie. And he's sort of this down on this luck guy, although he does see an amputee wheel by, and it's sort of meant to let you see that he's thinking, well, it could be worse. And he's quite optimistic in the beginning of the movie. Like they, they, right, he, he says he believes in America. Right, and everyone else is like incredibly down- on circ on their current circumstances and down on the general um, uh, unhappy state of society in Los Angeles in, 19- in the eighties, except him. although although it seems like Los Angeles in the nineteen eighties of this film like it's all about uh, income inequality because all the people you see on the streets look like they're living like shit and all the television commercials are all for fantastically expensive luxury items. There's a little bit of like the Paul Verhoeven. Like the TV conveys a little bit of humor or, or background message. Like there's a bit where a woman like has her nails done and she spears a cube of cheese with one of her nails <laughs> to yeah. eat it. You know, like like she spent a lot of money on her nails, but she's just going to stick it in the cube of cheese. That was the only one that gets even a remote hint of a smile, though. Like the, the, no, the Paul Verhoeven was, it was way funny. Yeah. But when there's was, a when was Robocop the, it was about the same. Uh, Robo, yeah, right, right around this time, um, there's 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 a Siskel and Ebert at the end. We'll get to that, um, and then he uh, he wanders to a construction site, um, and he, uh, he gets a job. Get sort of gets a job, uh, sort of implied that he's going to be a sort of a non-union laborer, and then he he befriends Keith David Childs from the thing. Right. Um, and, and also they, a character actor throughout the eighties and nineties, right? And then they they uh, they wind up at the most Hollywood looking hobo camp in history. That's yeah, it's like the friendliest, nicest. Hobo hey, camp. how are you? You got tools in that bag? Everybody is like nobody's stealing from him, right? There or on heroin? Of, right, there's not a bunch of drug addicts <laughs> rolling around. And, right? Yeah. No. 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 It's kumbaya camp. Yeah, but you know the they you know they show him and uh, what's his name in this movie? I keep calling him Childs, but uh, what's his name in this movie? Uh, Frank you know Armitage. I th- by the right, way. that's right, that's yeah. right. The same name it's as the, uh, the same name as the screenplay. Um, there's like a scene where they show the two of them eating their their free dinner on concrete blocks, just to sort of show you how down in their luck there are. And then uh, we become aware of a a, a church across the street. Uh, and there's a blind preacher who seems to be either transmitting or receiving the the hacker's message uh, that that people are watching a TV outdoors in the hobo camp. 
Right. It's, it's a very grainy kind of um, paranoid rant that breaks in on the regular, uh, like local news programming about the usual disasters. Right. Saying that um, there's a powerful signal that's taking over everybody's mind and they're they're living in a dream. And by a, by a miraculous uh, turn of events, uh, that that transmission is basically coming from across the street from the hobo camp. Um, so uh, Roddy or Nada, um, he wanders through the to the to, to the church, discovers the church is a front uh, and they're manufacturing um, sort of. Ray-Ban sunglasses that uh, are for an unclear reason. Yeah, they're more like um, dollar store Ray-Ban copies, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Two for a dollar. Um, they match the haircut perfectly. Yeah. No, I'm telling you, like, uh, I, I, I made a little note. I wrote on my sheet, they look pretty clean for sleeping in an outdoor hobo camp. <laughs> That's what I wrote to myself. Yep. Um, and then he realizes that there's something going on at the at the church and there's something fishing going on. And uh, it's really more of a science lab than a church. And they're in, there's people there scheming. And you see the guy who is making the hacker transmission. You see him in the church across the street. And then one night, um, the hobo camp is trashed in a scene reminiscent of the L.A. riots. Um, and the church and the hobo camp are essentially trashed. I mean, it's a long buildup in this movie. Oh, it certainly is. <laughs> and then Nada retrieves As a matter uh, some... of fact, I checked the timestamp, <laughs> and it was about... The... So the movie's an hour and a half, and it was a full about 45 minutes of buildup. Yeah, it's a lot of buildup. You know, it's funny, because I remembered a lot more action, and I was watching this, and I was like, boy, there's a lot less action than I recall. Well, they make up for it with the, with the seven-hour fight scene. Um, with, with right, the legendary David. fight scene. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So then after the hobo camp and the church are trash, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper retrieves uh, a box of glasses from his hidey hole. And then we come to the big reveal. Right. And so halfway into the movie, we finally get to the point, which is that he puts these you know, cheap sunglasses on and he can all of a sudden he can see that these sort of zombie like looking ghoul like looking people are running around. It it looks like they look sort of like rotting corpses. Yeah, but really sort of really cheaply done. Uh, really looks and, like and almost like done 1952. and partially done for gags like like the women and the men are both obviously all wearing wigs and they're wearing nice suits like an, an alien wearing a nice suit driving a beamer well yeah i mean he know he it's pretty obvious that that the um aliens or ghouls or whatever they are uh are tend to be the wealthier sort of stratos uh, strata of society and the, you know, yeah, the no, they're they're definitely are, are uh, well-to-do, well-to-do aliens. You know, they came from better zip codes, <laughs> right? On their planet, you right. know, <laughs> like Bel Air, <laughs> right? <laughs> the fresh alien of Bel Air, and uh, and there's and, and perhaps maybe the best scene in the whole movie is the first time that uh, he he puts the glasses on and he sees everything, and it's in black and white. By the way, when you look through the glasses, everything is in black and white, right? Um, and he sees all sorts of instructions all around him, marry and reproduce, assume positions of authority, obey. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, it looks like about one in 10 Don't or question. 15 people yeah. are aliens. Right. And and all the books and magazines basically like behind the content, every single page has a, uh, you know, a, 
a propaganda message that's, you know, like obey or something similar. And then, and this is how he realizes that at least all of Los Angeles has been completely infiltrated by extraterrestrials, sort of every possible level, because like he sees them on the television, right? And there's a there's a scene of what's obviously, I think, supposed to be Reagan as president is supposed to be an alien. Like they have a politician delivering a very Reagan esque speech. I mean, again, a lot of this movie is Carpenter's reaction to Reaganomic is the truth. Yeah. Um, well, you don't know they're aliens yet, even. I mean, you just sort of they look like these kind of well, I don't know they have they talk into their wristwatches and they teleport so oh. I, I mean I think it's pretty clear that they're aliens you think I don't know I thought yeah they were, I, I thought they were just I wasn't sure what they monsters were, something zombies I don't know I, I don't know like zombies don't usually use teleporting wristwatches <clears throat> at least I don't know I, there is an interesting bit where there's a drone I thought that was actually a really clever bit that 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 Carpenter sort of foresaw like drones flying around and we get a little drone cam view, like drone vision. Um, yeah, it looks like a 1950s drone version of it. It's, it's very uh, kind of ovoid and sleeky looking with a camera sticking out of it. Um, and then, you know, our attention is constantly drawn to cable channel 54. And by the way, 54 probably sounded like a high number in 1988. I have basic cable and I think I have 400 channels. Hmm. And by the way, there's nothing on. There's nothing on our basic cable, but there's somehow there's 400 channels and well, nothing. But anyway, they live is on. <laughs> I think it's on channel 361 right now in Spanish. Um, and Law and Order is on about 100 out of the 400 channels. <laughs> so, so he, when he becomes aware of things, he kind of becomes a lone vigilante. He, uh, he, he shoots up a bank. Uh, for unclear reasons. Yeah, for unclear reasons, he shoots up a bank and then he kidnaps Holly Thompson, who, in another fantastic coincidence, works at Cable 54. Like, not only is the hobo camp next door to the church where the transmission of the hackers are coming from, but the girl he randomly grabs, who could not possibly look more 80s, if she, unless maybe she was wearing leg warmers, um, happens to work at Cable 54. And then he kidnaps her. She's um, cool as a cucumber the whole time, too. Yeah. This is kind of our first uh, kidnapping since Three Days of the Condor, by the way, that we've covered. Um, and then he takes her back to her house where she manages to push him out a second story window. Yeah. And then he rolls down the hill, too. She does a good number <laughs> on him. She does. And, you know, to their credit, I had to give Carpenter credit. He's He looks like crap after the fall like he's covered in dirt and he's all scratched up and he like he walks like he's hurt like they didn't kind of cartoonify it any more than they had to to make you believe he survived a two-story fall like he looks bad yeah and she's like up in the hollywood hills so he falls onto this like it's like an 80 Steep. degree slope <laughs> <laughs> and he rolls i have down to tell like... you i totally forgot about that scene <laughs> i was just laughing when he went flying out that window yeah, he, he rolls down kind of like you know it's almost like wiley e. coyote where he plummets out of that window <laughs> <laughs> i mean that actually was a highlight i have to say <laughs> you were just mad at roddy piper um and then he's he's wandering downtown, and we see his headshot on TV, which is probably his publicity headshot. And then he tries to stow away in a garbage truck to recover his sunglasses. Um, and and uh, in a scene that makes no sense at all, there's nothing but the cleanest trash you've ever seen in the garbage truck. 
And the and the truck drivers, after loading up the truck, decide to dump all the trash in an alley. It makes no sense at all. And Unlike he's the rest clearly of the movie that makes perfect sense. Right. Well, he's also clearly not carrying the same box. Like the box is supposed to be full of sunglasses, and there's a, 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 a an angle where you can see the box that he's holding onto is completely empty. Yeah, he's, so he's it, manhandling it around, and like stuff would fall out, but nothing falls out. Yeah, it's really it's a it's a scene that doesn't make any sense and really didn't need to be there. And now we're about I don't know forty five minutes into the movie, maybe maybe sixty minutes into the movie. Oh yeah. So he goes back and he tries to convince Frank Keith David Childs uh, to put on sunglasses. I don't you know you'd think that at some point he would have just tried on the sunglasses. You know. Well, that's the that's exactly the point. You know, like he this guy first of all the guy, he comes off as a nut, which is actually the sort of nutty paranoia is sort of at the heart of the movie and it's, it's right the there's aliens all around us and we can't see them right but you know it that's go the ahead, interesting, go ahead. you know that's the interesting part of the movie but then you know the guy would have just been like all right man i'll try on the sunglasses just settle down <laughs> right no that's my point like right, he exactly. really really has to work hard to get him to try on the glasses he still never tries them on he they beat the crap out of each other for 47 minutes <laughs> but you know i was thinking in the middle of this, like right about at this moment, you know, if this was a Philip K. Dick property, you know, like the idea that there's aliens all around you and everyone thinks you're schizophrenic, but you're right. You know, that's like a very Philip K. Dick kind of idea. Sure. You know, that, that there's hidden messages in the television and and uh, everyone's an alien and they're pretending to be wealthy people, you know, assuming, oh, yeah. you know, good jobs. But, you know, here it doesn't have any of that Philip K. Dick paranoia. Like, it's very it's very comic booky. It's it be, that's because no one acts the way an, a normal person would. I mean, in Philip K. Dick's world, like the paranoia you can see the paranoia from the outside and you can kind of see it from the inside because he writes inside of it sometimes and people act the way you would expect them to act whether they're the same person or the crazy person and well and the other the other key thing that's missing here is that you know philip k dick often gave you that element of doubt right like is deckard a replicant i don't know do you know what i mean like he gave like is is um um, is 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 McQuaid on Mars or is he sleeping at Recall? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like right. here we right. know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Town, you know, or is right. there something more sinister going on underneath? And right. Know. Whereas here, there's none of that, and we know that Roddy Piper is 100 percent correct. So there's no feeling of paranoia at all or doubt in your mind. Right. right. They take you the know? germ of the most interesting part of the movie and basically. So then first they stomp on it and then they make it inconsistent. They make it, there's no internal consistency with it. And then on top of that, um, they squander any kind of, uh, you know, they, they squander it because no one, uh, it, it's to it's totally useless. Essentially. It's not used. If in, this, right. In, if this was a Philip K. Dick movie, the closing shot would be when, when the satellite dish is smashed, Roddy Piper looks in the mirror and he's an alien. <laughs> that would right. That would be the Philip K. Dick ending, right? Well, I mean, there there would be a million things that could have been done. I mean, this could have been decent. 
yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's as bad as you think it is. I think I'm a little more forgiving of it, but uh, I think it it's sucks. it's not nearly as much. I remembered it very differently. Like I remembered watching this with my dad as a teenager and liking it a lot more. And as I was watching it this time, like whole scenes that I thought were in it weren't in it that I was remembering from other movies, and maybe I was transferring some goodwill from other properties. Yeah, you remembered but, good movies. <laughs> So so anyway so in order to get uh, Frank Childs to uh, to put on the Ray Bands, they have a five minute and twenty second fight. That's it. <laughs> I assure you, it feels more like fifty two minutes. It just goes on and on and on for no reason. I mean, I mean, they. Let me tell you, I have been punched in the face once or twice. Fight over. <laughs> like like when you get punched in the face, fight is over. It's done. Yeah. Like these guys take 10. This is like Rocky and Ivan Drago. <laughs> <laughs> they're just like they're delivering these closed fist body blows and punches to the face and the mouth. And they're like kind of half wrestling. It's unbelievable. And at one point, I don't for, I don't remember which one. One of them bites the other in the hand. Yeah. Right. By the way, that's a high risk for Iconella infection. But anyway, um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. You know, they'd have like Lafort two fractures, you know, in their faces at the end of this thing. But somehow they they kind of reconcile and he gets them to wear the glasses at the end of five minutes and 20 seconds. He basically forces them to wear them. But, you know, this is the thing. Rocky four made far more sense. Like they fight and they fight, but there's just it's totally it's nonsensical. I mean, there's yeah, no. no and no one seems to notice right at all like they're fighting out in the open right behind some building in an alley and nobody notices these guys tearing into each other um so he finally puts them on he finally kind of forces them to wear them right and then he enters the the new reality where where he sees that they are in fact surrounded by aliens. And then they get a hotel room together, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like if they didn't have any money and had to live in a hobo camp, suddenly they have enough money for a hotel room. Well, I think that uh, you know f uh, that Frank has been saving his money a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way that, I, that a nice touch is when they walk into the. I think it's the hotel uh, in the lobby. There's a television showing flying saucers uh, flying over a city. I thought that was kind of neat. Um, and then they come to the realization, and I thought this was actually one of the best scenes in the movie, that they realize that they're not the only ones. Like, someone had to have made the glasses. Right. Right. And they realize that there must be some sort of underground or resistance, which they, they then, through sort of unclear means to sort of find their way well not like he, right not says you know he knows who that the guys in the church made him and he remembers who's right who. and by uh, and by another coincidence he runs into him in the lobby the guy just shows up the yeah next scene, it's, the dude it's shows completely up. it's terrible well it's, maybe they maybe he edited something out for, for time right yeah but it's awful because well, it just seems it seems stupid well i want to know why he edited that part out and he left the 17 minute <laughs> fight scene in <laughs> the movie is a, a 93 minutes actually 87 of them are the fight yeah. um and then on their way to the meeting of the resistance they open carry their weapons which i thought was amazing i mean i understand that this is los angeles but they're like they're literally like child's frank whatever you want to call him he's literally walking around with a revolver out in the open in his right hand they, yeah, he's. They walk around. He's always walking around with like. No one like seems Rambo. to notice. 
And then um, uh, they get to the they get to the resistance meeting where they are let in by the guy who looks exactly like a by a bearded biker guy who looks just like the guy who confronts Arnold at the bar in Terminator 2. And by the way, that scene also involves sunglasses, because in that movie, Arnold takes that guy's sunglasses, but it looks just like him. He's dressed the same. He has the same beard, and they both carry shotguns. Hmm. It's kind of weird. Um, and then um, he goes to the meeting, right? And then uh, we meet the Resistance, which is the, the least impressive group of Resistance fighters I've ever seen. They look like suburban dads, these guys. <laughs> well, the guy's got his daughter there. You know, like, it's just... It's and like, he's like, when are we going to spill some blood? <laughs> like, that's that guy's one line. Not only is... I mean, but they're also, like... I mean, they're... they're, in, they're Again, there's no internal consistency, even with the resistance fighters. Yeah. I mean, it looks like... It, it looks like, like a meeting of, like... AA. I don't know. Yeah, or like, or like, like a church meeting or something. I don't know they look very unthreatening. Yet they have, they have uh, put out all their weapons on tables, and so Frank and, and Nada impressive. grab a bunch of weapons uh, at the very moment that the SWAT team storms the place Which, and and kills virtually everyone. Yeah, that, that whole shoot 'em up with the SWAT team is another. Just it's a real head shaker. It just is the worst. <laughs> it's so terrible looking. Right, because we're told that the cover story is that they're commies, uh, as if as if a there aren't people who have, to the far left in Los Angeles who consider themselves communists, and b as if the Los Angeles police would just storm in and murder them all. Like you're supposed to just accept that. That's the response as they just come in and shoot everybody. I don't know if it you looks noticed, terrible. but it well, you know, it's funny. Like I actually was thinking it it was filmed very similarly to the Sandman attack scene at Cathedral Station in Logan's Run. Like it sounded the same, and a lot of the shots were the same. And I was wondering if they were sort of like unconsciously ripping off Logan's Run. It looks way better in Logan's Run, but it's very similar. Well, the SWAT team, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, it looked like they were wearing Escape from New York uniforms. Remember, like there's all the officers at Liberty Island. Yeah. And Escape from New York, and these uniforms look just like those. I was literally wondering, did they reuse the costumes? Like, did Carpenter have some Escape from New York costumes, and he just redid them? I mean, it really looks... Some, I mean, sometimes I think he's doing it deliberately, because it looks so cheap and primitive. Um, and, you know, sometimes he, he definitely is trying to get a 50s kind of sci-fi vibe in the movie. Um, yeah, and he and he achieves that. I mean, like this is sort of like a low budget remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers in a way. I mean, but really low budget. Good lord! And I mean, it's just this is another scene. It just doesn't. It looks bad, in my opinion. And um, th right. So then, um, after the Sandman slash L.A. Police massacre, <clears throat> Childs and uh, I'm just gonna keep calling him Childs. Childs and Nada. Um, <laughs> Through a, a series of events that don't make any sense, can't teleport, so a magical hole appears in the floor and they jump through it. Oh, yeah. That was... Um, right. That from from a no cheap sense. Walmart $5 watch, they're able to, to teleport through this hole in the floor. And they come up at the, you know, in the, the catering level of a luxury hotel. Um, to which point we are we see some some of these other you know, evil soldiers uh, 
backslapping that saying we got them and we won the battle. And uh, I don't know if you noticed them, but one of them was talking into a prop. That's a PKE hand meter, which is used in Ghostbusters. Like that's a reuse <laughs> of a Ghostbusters prop. It is. It's definitely the notice. Ghostbusters prop. Um, and then they they walk into a banquet where there's a, a, an incredible amount of exposition. And then this is, I think, where the movie really kind of goes off the rails. As if it hadn't gone off the rails yet. <laughs> this is, up. for me, this is really, this is the turning point. And then they're, they're, they're in this banquet where everyone is wearing tuxedos and they're just openly talking about we're aliens and we're taking over and you humans that are in this room are going to help us and you're going to make money out of it. Right. Um, and I think this is where this sort of like reaction to 80s capitalism, Reaganomics, you know, like the whole aliens are a metaphor for materialistic success. Just it's just it's it's done so poorly. Yeah. Cue the crickets. You know, I mean, it's just you're watching. Well, it's kind of like this is this is supposed to be in some ways a climactic scene because it's you're supposed to be realizing the extent of the complicity, the extent that the uh, paranoid fear is, has been realized. Right? right. And everyone has their price, literally. Right. And, you know, there's like there's like, you know, think of like a, you know, a great this, I was thinking of, a, you know, great climactic scene, let's say like. 1980, The Shining, when Shelley Duvall, they've been in the, the in the resort up in the, it snowed in for like two, three months. He's the been, Overlook. Yeah, he's been writing, you know, Nickel, Jack Nicholson's been sitting there writing and working and working, and she finally goes to look at what he's been doing, and there's like 8,000 pages of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, right? And it's the most, it's a terrifying, like, climactic sequence that, like, it has this tremendous amount of impact, you know, and then this is, is not like that. <laughs> this is the mathematical inverse of that. <laughs> right. If you take the intensity and the horror of that, uh, <laughs> we just completely invert it. You get this. <laughs> and, you know, and there's all these sort of silly lines. Like uh, one guy says, the guy in the tuck says it's business. That's all there is. Or we all sell out every day. Like, like as if, as if they haven't made their point clear at this point in the movie, they still say it five more times. And that guy, I, you know, I'm thinking like this guy is supposed to be someone we've seen before because he kind of recognizes them, right? From the hobo camp. Right. And then, you know, like reading about it, the brief amount of reading I did afterward, right? He's a dude from the hobo camp who's now wearing a tux. Right. And, and looks all cleaned up. And somehow is has gone from being a hobo to being very very comfortable with his wealth in about four hours, right? And he he sort of takes them as as being uh, you know other um, uh, guys who are complicit or other conspirators, human conspirators with the aliens who are at this little meeting for some reason in the in the you know subway. And then uh, Childs has some sort of automatic. Uh, like it looks like an Uzi or something similar, and and Nada has what looks like an M4, and Nada's uh, M4 appears to have a clip in it that contains 963 rounds. <laughs> it was a drum. <laughs> you just couldn't see it. <laughs> I mean, like he's got a small clip. He looks like he's got a 10 round clip in that gun, and there are all these scenes. There's just this endless long shootout now where they're shooting up the hotel, which happens to be in the basement of Channel 54. Another amazing coincidence. Right. Um, and um, he, I mean, he just holds the trigger down on full auto and never, ever runs out of ammo. And then they keep cutting, you know, editing 
is, is super impressive because they keep cutting to the scene of the the, the muzzle, like the flash suppressor, <laughs> right. you know, just da, 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 jumping, you know, then close. And it's up. also it's 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 even worse because the muzzle is pointing to the left, and in the, most of the scenes they're pointing to the right. Yeah. So like it's sort of jarring. Like they they didn't really edit it properly. Oh boy. Um, and then for whatever reasons, he decides that um, he's going to risk his life to try to save Holly Thompson, who they find there. Um, considering that the last time he saw her, she threw by the two-story window. Right. He decides that he's going to risk everything to save her. And I thought it was actually good that Childs was like, what are you, crazy? Like, you're yeah. going to go after that girl? What are you, an idiot? Like, he kind of calls him out on it. And the best Which thing I is, thought was really funny. Right. He's always asking anybody where she is. And then he asks everybody, where's the roof? Like, you know, let's <laughs> telegraph our intentions. <laughs> Where's the roof? Can you tell me the way to the roof it's, so I can go destroy the it's, transmitter? It's downstairs. <laughs> can I? Uh, we're going to head up to destroy the transmitter. Can you tell me where the transmitter is? So they make it to the roof uh, only to have Holly shoot uh, Frank Childs uh, in the head at, at like point blank range. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's funny because, in you know, in the thing, the whole thing turns on is, is Child the alien here. There's no doubt he's not the alien. Um, and um, there's a there's a, a dish on the roof that is transmitting the magical signal that prevents everyone in the world from seeing the aliens uh, who we've learned are teleporting to, Andromeda. Uh, I think, yeah, Andromeda. In wearing business suits, by the way, and carrying um, shopping bags, so clearly <laughs> and, they've been and to briefcases. Rodeo, they've been to Rodeo Drive because they needed some cufflinks or something, right? So they, that scene really felt like, like what? I just, I just was at that point. I was just like, kind of hanging my head in shame for picking this movie. There's a bunch um, of like, there's a bunch of dudes from like Wu Tang wearing urban camouflage, standing around with M16s. <laughs> And then while these guys like come and go with their shot with their like Brooks Brothers shopping bags because they they needed to get a scarf for Mother's Day, right? Their their Fendi bags. <laughs> um, so uh, he somehow like the the dish on the roof of this building that's transmitting this all important signal is completely unprotected out in the open with right. nobody there to watch it and he appears to fire a nine millimeter round into it from a pistol uh and the entire alien plot is unraveled as if by magic from one round right as he's um, shot by the way so he right he's end. shot by holly um right. she's the femme fatale um literally uh, and then the whole thing, I mean, as if it wasn't ridiculous enough already, the the finale turns sort of both comedic and farcical as we see what happens when the aliens are revealed. And we see, for example, a movie review show, which is clearly supposed to be Siskel and Ebert talking about how the movies have no restraint. And they, they mentioned by name how the Siskel monster says that he's tired of George Romero and John Carpenter uh movies um which is funny uh, because i remember them both of them like loved halloween <laughs> and he's complaining and then like like newscasters everyone is revealed you know to be an alien and there's panic and pandemonium in the street and the scene ends like the entire film and the closing scene is is this very attractive woman having sex with an alien and he's like what's the matter baby 
That was the best scene in the entire movie. It is, you know, I have to tell you, my dad and I always joked about that scene. Like that scene I remembered and I knew that was coming. And you could you could tell at that point, like they were just like, you know, throwing the script up in the air, like, what? Ever. Yeah. There, well, there are two good things in the movie that scene, and then the first, when he first puts the sunglasses on for about 45 seconds, when he, when he's looking around and he sees how everything's black and white and all the billboards say obey. Those are the two scenes of the movie I liked. You know, the movie was just savaged uh, in the reviews. Like it, it opened at number one and then it sank like a stone, and the reviews are very negative. But like, if you listen to podcasts about John Carpenter or, or blogs about John Carpenter, like a, a lot of people kind of have kind of critically reevaluated this movie and like it much more now than they did when it came out. Um, I don't know if we're in that camp, but uh, <laughs> but I'm telling you, like among hardcore Carpenter films, like they there's a lot of love for They Live. Hey, hey, hey. Haven't these people seen Halloween or Escape from New York? <laughs> I don't know. To me, the thing is his sort of oh, zenith movie. Right. But, uh, yeah, but you know, he wanted, by good. the way, he wanted Kurt Russell to be in this, but he felt like he was overusing Kurt Russell because he had put him in big trouble in Little China and Escape from New York, and they didn't feel like they could get away with it. And they they ended up going with Roddy Piper. Well, that was the story that he told, but in reality, he gave Kurt the script and was like, hey, this is their next project. <laughs> and then, like, right, Kurt, Goldie Hawn then read it and told Kurt, don't take no, it. No, Kurt mysteriously stopped answering the phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Carpenter uh, himself uh, I read that he was so excited because it did. It was number one the first week, and he was like, "We've got a hit on our hand." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this! I, I don't think he really made a good movie after this. I think that, like, I mean, I think this was it. Uh, well, he has a lot of movies after this. I mean, there's a lot to the John Carpenter filmography. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's what a disappointment. I think I saw that with you, by the way. Yeah. But he made. I mean, after this, he has "In the Mouth of Madness," which was a huge hit for him. Um, he had, and you know he had 2018's uh, Halloween. He's had some big stuff. Um, but uh, did, you know, actually, one thing I did like is after the giant fight scene, um, Frank and Nada never looked right again. Like they look beat up for the rest of the movies. They had some good continuity there, at yeah. least. You know. And, like their faces are all swollen and smashed. And I mentioned before, by the way, I mean, Carpenter and one other person, I think, wrote the soundtrack. This movie, the soundtrack, you can, I, it, you cannot overstate how terrible it was. It's just it's just them playing a synthesizer with two fingers at a time. That's the entire soundtrack. A synthesizer or like a guitar and a bass or something like occasionally. <laughs> do, 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 do. It's got this, like, this just do, do, extremely do, do, do. for two For an hour and a half. It's yeah, the same four and, notes. And, right. And the other thing is like they feel like they have to put some kind of droning, repetitive uh, little riff that they play over and over again in every single frame of the movie. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because he composed the music for The Thing, for example, and he composes the music for a lot of his movies, but like in The Thing, the minimal soundtrack is very effective. But it's just so weird, like between, for example, you know, The Thing and this movie, he makes Christine, yeah. which is very polished, Starman, which 
is an interesting movie. It's not a great movie, but it's really interesting. It's Big Trouble in Little China. Right. Prince of Darkness. Yeah, I mean, he's putting out a movie every year, and then this feels just like a huge step backwards. That's why. Huge. But that's why, you know, I mean, given the amount of extremely polished and extremely, you know, professional um, movies that, that the guys put out, this this thing, it, it's so unusual. That's why, you know, I think, I, I think he deliberately made a kitschy it was is a sort of a throwback to 50s style i guess the style he probably watched when he was growing up you know like creature from the black lagoon kind of um feeling to the movie and you know you know what also is it actually reminds me of omega man this movie because yeah it has a somewhat it has this, this kind of kitschy in a bad way feel to it but maybe he kind of felt like I'm I'm casting a wrestler like like because I am casting a wrestler like the whole thing takes on like a kitsch feel and he, maybe he felt like I'll just see if I can run with that. Well, he should have had him break a chair over somebody or something. <laughs> There's a little wrestling bit in the fight scene. Did you know by the way Roddy Piper died at he died in 2015. Yeah, I know. He had an MI. Like he's pretty young. He was only 61. No, I know. I wasn't a wrestling fan as a kid. Were you a wrestling fan? No. no. I was never into it. <clears throat> um, I mean, I only knew that there was a wrestler named Rowdy Roddy Piper. That was literally all I knew. Well, I mean, apparently, I think he was like a big Hulk Hogan rival. I think he was one of the, one of the what they call the bad guys. Like mm. the, the sort of, you know, they had like stars right, that were like heroes. Right, like scripted and, thing. And stars that were villains, you know, and I think he was like the villain. Right. Yeah, I don't know. You know, uh, this was very different than I remembered it. Like, I remember this being much more fun. I think and also like, you know, this sort of like, you know, I don't know, political commentary seems more sophisticated when you're a kid. And as an adult, it's just cringeworthy. Yeah. Uh, But I agree with you, though, that the, the scene where they put the glasses on, it's the best scene in the movie. Right. No, I think so. Um, I mean, that's kind of the the high concept moment of the entire film. And then they kind of abandon that for basically sort of like an action shoot 'em up, which becomes a farce by the end. Yeah. But it, it shows you like in, in a different director's hands or maybe even the same director with more money and time, they could have made a completely different film. You could have made a, a real sort of um, social commentary uh, paranoiac, um, you know, Phil Dick kind of movie out of this thing. You could have done it successfully. And I'm sure that he could have done it successfully. And I don't, it's, it's, it's a bit mysterious to me. Yeah. The entire, uh, film was shot in eight weeks. I mean, it shows, you know what I'm saying? Like you think of, it doesn't look more than like eight days. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you think of, again, just because we were coming on the heels of uh, Kubrick and Full Metal Jacket, you know, like Kubrick planned that movie for a decade and it was like a it was like a, a year long shoot. Yeah, just the shoot was a year. 
Uh, right, exactly. And then another year or two to edit the thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this thing, I mean, this is literally slapdash. I, I don't know. I, I feel a little bad trashy because I like Carpenter. And again, there are aspects of this film that I like and I can get behind. And I did not have a bad time watching it. It sounds like you had a bad time watching it. I didn't have a bad time watching it, but it was like there were whole scenes that I was expecting that I was realizing like I was transposing in my head from other films that just weren't there. Well, you know, once the movie, and I'm not kidding, I looked at the time, it's 45 minutes until he actually puts the glasses on. That's halfway through the movie, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a... But it's a lot point, of burn. Yeah, but anyway, it's point, a lot of time to burn. Then I start, I thought, okay, you know, there's that good scene. He puts, he sees everything. And I thought, all right, here we go. Now it's going to get good. And it gets good for about four minutes. And then, yeah. then it's back. To, and so that, then I just, I got very disappointed after that. Because um, <laughs> it got my own so. Womp, womp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should probably wrap there. I don't know. I don't. There's, the problem is there's there's no real deep level of analysis you can apply to this movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, like the message is so on the surface, and they they say it explicitly so many times. Like, there really isn't much of a subtext to this, mm, and then it really just uh, becomes the mechanics of the plot. Right. Yuppie capitalism is bad. You know, I did read that. Um, well, I'm sort of Reaganomics. You know, I, um, Roddy Piper was Canadian, and you know, when they did the press for the movie, when they did the press tours, uh, you know, Carpenter was very anti-Reagan and, and you know, sort of anti, I don't know, just sort of opposed to the sort of the, the current uh, uh, climate in the U.S. at the time. And and uh, Roddy Piper was a conservative who liked Reagan. And uh, because he was Canadian, he said, I really shouldn't say anything about your country's politics. So in when his press interviews for the movie, he went 10 miles out of the way to never really talk about politics, which I thought was kind of interesting. Hmm. It was pretty smart. Yeah, it was smart of him. Yeah, no, that's my point. Yeah. <clears throat> All so, right. Should we wrap there? Yeah, next, they live. Next they week. They live. Next week, Blue Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and then after that, Firefox. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, we saw Blue Thunder and Firefox together. Yeah, I mean Blue Thunder at the same theater. Yeah, Blue Thunder. Oh my god, they can make Firefox look decent. (laughs) But you know what the worst thing about Blue Thunder and Firefox is? We loved them. We loved it. Yeah. Oh my god, especially Firefox. I remember. I remember being so excited by Firefox. It's funny because when you see it on cable now. <laughs> and I like Clint a lot, but you know Clint. You know, by the way, you know when Clint sees Firefox on cable, he says the same thing. Yeah, he goes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! All right, we should wrap. All right, thanks. Bye.